0: Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. On this week's show, posting July 24th, 2015, we talk with Peter Atwater, an expert on the psychology behind much financial, political, and social decision making, about his current website blog post headline: "What's Next for Greece and the European Union." You're listening to World Policy on Air. Now this. μαζί γράψαμε μια σελίδα στη σύγχρονη ευρωπαϊκή ιστορία. Αποδείξαμε. Despite late polls suggesting the opposite, Greeks in July voted to reject crippling new austerity measures in exchange for a bare minimum of European financing to avoid Grexit, becoming the first nation forced out of the Eurozone. The surprising result was a, quote, brave decision, said leftist Prime Minister Alexis Tsipras, who had campaigned vigorously for it, in line with his Syriza party's left-wing ideology. Then Cyprus compounded the surprise. Ignoring the vote, he agreed to even stiffer EU terms that prompted bitter public protest, but, by this week, did permit reopening of shuttered banks and significantly eased restrictions on the cash Greeks, especially elderly retirees, could withdraw from them. But nobody saw it as a sure step towards long-term financial salvation for essentially bankrupt Greece. Some predicted at least a temporary withdrawal from the euro system. Others saw the currency system itself unraveling. And still others predicted similar disintegration for the larger political and social compact of the European Union. Among the latter group is Peter Atwater, an expert on the impact of psychology and mood on financial, political, and social decision-making. His latest post on World Policy Journal blog is headlined, What's Next for Greece and the European Union? And I spoke about it with him earlier for this podcast. Peter Atwater, welcome back to World Policy on Air.
1: Thank you very much, David.
0: You saw the election of anti-austerity Syriza as, quote, the clear mobilization of a fearful society. Is that true as well for the no vote on the Eurozone bailout offer, as brave as it might have appeared to risk sailing alone into stormy financial seas?
1: Absolutely. I think that what you saw with the referendum vote was, again, a decision on the part of Greeks to trade their uncertain future for anything else but that. And that's typically what you see at bottoms and confidence.
0: You also predicted in the piece, earlier piece you did for uh, World Policy Journal, that Tsipras, quote, will be highly incentivized to take a very hard line with the European Commission, the International Monetary Fund, and the European Central Bank, and not the conciliatory path of his predecessors as prime minister. Were you surprised that he did not? And do you think he saw it as necessary to avoid the Brexit that you think is inevitable? Or was it a tactic to get better terms for such a Greek departure? Temporary or permanent
1: actually, I think he took an extreme hard line throughout the negotiations i mean if you if you look at the progress over the weekend, um, there was a clear Belief that there would be no deal. And I think it was only at the very end when it became clear to him that the consequence would be Grexit, that he realized that his back was up against the wall. And, and at that point, you saw a pretty, a pretty clear capitulation entirely.
0: And you say that continuing constraint on the amount of euros that Greeks are permitted to withdraw from their banks and spend into the economy is already pushing them to experiment with alternative forms of cash and commercial transactions. Greek friends tell me they're seeing more barter. Say more about that whole phenomenon.
1: Sure. I mean, the the constraint that exists today, that 60 euro per day limit, 420 euros a week, really forces... Greeks to come up with alternatives, uh, bartering, um, you know, the introduction of non-traditional currencies, uh, sending back and forth IOUs. People are coming up with a currency system outside of the eurozone at this point, and I think that, interestingly, that becomes a a deterrent or a, an ability for the Greeks to fight back on the fears of Grexit. Um, you know, the longer that this crisis goes on, the, the, the more time Greeks have to come up with an alternative to the euro, and you're seeing them do that.
0: How do you see the mood of the Greeks and their prospects impacted by the IMF stressing that they must have significant debt relief, not just lengthening of the time in which they still can't repay it?
1: I think that that may be, at the end of the day, the reason that Cyprus capitulated is that he knew that in his corner he had uh Christine Lagarde and that the IMF is going to demand that the debt not only be you know not just extended and interest rates lowered but actual haircuts taken and i think that that is one of the things that is offering hope to greeks today but again the the longer the negotiations go on and it's now t- they're now talking about August, and my guess is that'll be pushed further, um, there comes a point of hopelessness, and I think we're rapidly approaching that.
0: Hopelessness or a sort of comfort with a non, uh, or or at least a less Euro-based economy.
1: Yes, and I I think, unfortunately, the, the more policymakers leave Grexit out there as an alternative, the more it becomes a reality. It's, it's as if, and I wrote this in my, my piece for the World Policy Institute, it's no different from saying that we're going to close the banks at some point in the future. You, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, and that's what's happening, I think, with Grexit, that it's, it's now just a matter of time before Greeks either voluntarily or involuntarily leave the euro.
0: What about the suggestions that Russia or China, despite obvious financial problems of their own, might be up for major investment in the Greek economy as a beachhead for geopolitical influence and that the U.S. government might see fit to funnel in funds to block that?
1: Well, I think there's no no question that both Russia and China have interest in Greek ports and the access to the Mediterranean that that would afford them. And this is where it becomes very interesting in terms of the changing alliances that overlay Europe, because, you know, you can see the United States with its interest in NATO being very concerned about that. And so I think the the backdrop of both China and Russia create an environment where my enemy's enemy is my friend. Whether that's sustainable, it's not clear to me. And so I can see Greece uh, playing both sides against the middle in an effort to achieve whatever it can in terms of maximizing financial incentives from both sides.
0: Ultimately, you see the likelihood of dysfunction, more anger, and political extremism in Greece. Maybe a military coup?
1: Yes. One of the things that we see when mood falls is that political systems fragment. And I wrote a piece about this for the World Policy Institute uh, during the 2012 elections where the the popular vote, which had been highly concentrated among centrist candidates, dissipated entirely. And you saw as many votes to the left as you did to the far right. And so if mood continues to fall, you will see the rise of candidates who are even more extreme. And I think this is something that European policymakers are completely overlooking. Because Tsipras, as much as they may dislike him, is likely to be the best alternative that they have, and that whoever replaces him is going to be far more extreme, and there I would say either more extreme to the far left, or potentially you see the pendulum swing completely the other direction to the far right, And you could see a resurgence of a right wing neo Nazi party like Golden Dawn, or even uh, the advent of a military coup. Uh, Particularly if the social mood today, which seems to be one of resignation, morphs more. Um, actively into anger and hostility, which is something that I'm watching closely. That would certainly and give the military a a credible backdrop to to seize control.
0: And various insiders say that Germany, as strong man of the EU or strong woman, given Chancellor Angela Merkel's prime role, was willing to force out spendthrift Greece, as they saw it, as a lesson to other eurozone nations also suffering hard economic times. Now you say it is the idea of Greece leaving the euro and, and surviving uh, that's spreading to those other troubled states, threatening the whole system. Talk about that.
1: Yeah, I think the. You know, Greece is one of many. Uh, When you see a crisis, we saw this with the banking crisis a few years ago in the United States, the weakest always go first. And among the periphery countries in Europe, Greece fits that bill, Uh, second probably only to Iceland. And so, I think that the social mood characteristics that exist in Spain, in Italy, and Portugal are such that what begins in Greece could very quickly uh, spread socially across uh, the, the Mediterranean coast. And I've analogized that Greece could be the Tunisia of a European spring event where these other countries follow suit.
0: Relate that to the mood you see aggravating all the EU's cultural, social, and political differences, a festering North-South European divide.
1: Well, one of the things that you find when mood falls is that stereotypes and generalizations are recast negatively, and you see that a stereotype begins to lead to prejudice, leads to discrimination, and ultimately to outright hatred when mood is very, very low. And so you're seeing these uh, cultural stereotypes being recast more and more negatively as mood is falling, uh, particularly in, in northern Europe. One of the things that I think has sustained Greece over the last several years has been rising confidence particularly in germany and and to a lesser extent in in the netherlands that mood is now shifted and so you have a, a situation where you have extreme low confidence in the periphery and falling confidence in the north and that creates a situation where these Historically, you know, what, what would otherwise be thought of as petty differences really begin to create material divisions in, in the, the union and how different countries interact with each other.
0: You're what a, seeing
1: that on the immigration front.
0: What about signs of especially strained relations between Germany and France, initially co-leaders of the EU?
1: When I think of Europe, uh, the analogy I use is the old uh, band, the girl band, the Supremes. In 2000, you had the Supremes, you had a group of leaders. Yes, Germany and France were clearly. The the more dominant forces behind it, but there was a sense of we're in this together. Everyone is equal in this band. As mood has deteriorated, you're seeing the same thing that you saw with with Diana Ross, and that it became Diana Ross and the Supremes. And I think that uh, I have analogized that. What you saw recently was Donnie and Marie, that this pairing of Hollande and Merkel, and now that's even breaking up. And I think it creates real stress that you now have Merkel as a solo artist and that it it is evident to everyone at this point that Germany stands by itself that France is quickly being perceived as part of a southern problem and not part of a northern contingent.
0: I've seen suggestions, including from uh, financial kingpin George Soros, that it is powerhouse Germany that should exit the euro system uh, to improve its own trade balance and to let a lower-valued euro make weaker European economies more competitive. How does that strike you?
1: I have long agreed with that view that it's actually far easier for the North to exit from the South, and that what that also does is that it leaves the South with Euro denominated debts that they can more easily manage. And, uh, you know, I think that the question would become, you know, who is which countries are part of a northern euro versus a southern euro. The risk right now is that you have a northern euro and a series of small, illiquid, uh, capital-controlled national currencies across the periphery. And that does none of those countries any real good.
0: Meanwhile, while things exist as they are, some say TPR should form a national unity government, uh, fill top economic posts with technocrats, and quickly schedule another referendum that clearly poses the question of paying the price to stay with the euro or leaving it. Uh, how would that affect the national mood or be affected by it?
1: I think that that referendum has already taken place. I think that... that what Greeks said in the vote a few weeks ago is that they are unable emotionally to withstand any more austerity. And so the, the, the concern that I have is that there has been nothing since then. The, the supposed deal... Uh, the supposed bank openings have done very, very little to boost internal Greek confidence and I think that policymakers, both inside and outside of the country, need to recognize that there will be no recovery in Greece that is not um, that is not formed by confidence rising first, and nothing that I have seen to date has Greek confidence as a primary objective. We're still dealing with this as if it's a, a parlor game among technocrats and not a, an extraordinary social crisis that is, I think, very close to uh, getting out of hand.
0: Peter, I want to thank you.
1: Thank you very much, David.
0: Peter Atwater, president of the research firm Financial Insights, that's I-N-S-Y-G-H-T-S, is an expert on the impact of psychology and confidence on financial, political, and social decision-making. His book is Moods and Markets from the FT Press, and his latest post on the World Policy Journal blog is headlined, What's Next for Greece and the European Union? Featured in the summer 2015 issue of World Policy Journal, cover headline, Climate's Cliff, you'll find articles on developing solar, wind, and nuclear power, about threats to the environment from Nicaragua to the Arctic, and about answers from six continents to the issue's big question, who has the most to lose from climate change in your country? Plus, tune in to next week's podcast as we talk with Shanghai-born novelist Chu Xiaolong about his short story on the pollution, corruption, and politics behind China's smothering skies, the first fiction ever published by World Policy Journal in its new Climate's Cliff 2015 summer issue. World Policy On Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor-publisher David Adelman, managing editor Jaffa Frederick, online news editor and podcast producer Matthew DeMello. I'm David Alpern.